interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Be afraid. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Ghouls and gore. And sometimes a little more. My bloody podcast. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the interview podcast, part of my bloody podcast. I'm Brian Kluger, and uh, we are here with an excellent, excellent show today. We are in week 3,422 of the quarantine and lockdown, but we are surviving. We are watching movies and TV, and I am so glad to be joined uh, with the co-host, with the most, the man who I want to live in a bunker with underground, Mark Chaffordini. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I, I love the idea of living with you in a bunker underground. I hope that uh, we get lights on for more than an hour a day. I know, right? I hope so. But today is a very special day. We have a thrilling, a magnificent filmmaker, jack of all trades. He's written, produced, directed. His latest film, his latest film is... I really, really like this film. It's called Inheritance. Inheritance. Uh, his previous film was called Terminal, which I also love. Mr. Bond Stein, how are you doing today? I am very good. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I will be sending it to my mom. <laughs> Excellent. I tried to go a little WWE wrestling for it. It was good. Time. It was good hype. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. And our uh, first off, before we get into all the movie stuff and everything, I just well, we want to ask, like, we hope you're okay. And how are you doing and the family doing and all of this crazy craziness? We're, we're doing all right. It's, yeah, we're, we're, we're very lucky, my wife and my dog and I. We, we live on the outskirts of London, so we are... There's a lot of dog walking and we can kind of get out and about, you know, responsibly. Um, yeah, everyone's doing okay. I mean, it's a, it's a weird time. I don't know. I'm sure it's the same for you guys. There's a lot of sort of amazing kind of social bonding going on. There's a, you know, like we do this thing, we clap for the NHS every Thursday night at 8 PM and the whole streets out. There's a real sort of sense of community spirit and everyone's checking in on their neighbors. I don't know. In a, perverse way it's kind of beautiful no i i agree with that we, we've learned to deal with because uh mark and i both live in dallas and we always hang out in person but we haven't been able to hang out for like the last two or three months so it's uh very weird so we do a lot of these zooms you know there's alcohol involved i don't know <laughs> oh yeah no that's what we do we do friday night cocktails with the steins which is bawdy and luckily everyone's separate i'm sure it'd be ending in a fist fight otherwise but no, it's right. good. No, no like, that's, what, that's what I try to do. Try to get that, uh, get that, uh, that alcohol and food on every Friday night for sure. <laughs> I actually got rid of my ISO beards last week for press. Oh. I had like, you know, I was, I went for it. I went Guantanamo, but yeah, I had to go. It was, it was not. It gets not itchy. It gets itchy. I did that too recently and I made a video of it and it was just, uh, I was ready for it to go. Did yeah. That. Did you donate it to charity, Brian? I did know, uh, donate it to charity, yes. <laughs> Beards, or what was it, Locks for Charity? I don't remember what it's yeah. called. <laughs> locks for Love. Yes, Beard for Love, I don't know. <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's good, it's good. Let, let's, let's start, let's start, Vaughn. Let, where, I want to ask you, where did it all begin for you 
in film? Like, was it a certain movie you watched? What was that spark? Where did it all begin for you with movies? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I kind of, I grew up in theatre more than anything. Um, I was sort of involved in professional theatre as a kid. And I, I always grew up thinking I'd, um, I'd, I'd, I'd go into that. Um, and I sort of, I started falling in love with film. I think, like... I vividly remember going to see Gladiator in the cinema. That was a big moment for me. Like I, I vividly remember that sort of visceral experience of, of Gladiator. And like, it's still kind of in the, the ever circling top 10 that we all have. It's still always up there. And I remember that had a, that had a profound effect on me. That, that sort of the size of that, the, the world building. I, I, I don't know that, that, that really resonated with me. Um, and I think I sort of started falling in love with it more and more when I was at school. And I'm sure, you know, the, the, the ever-present film club that, I don't know, when I was in my later years at school was taken pretty seriously. And I think that was the first time I saw Taxi Driver, the first time I saw Harvey, the first time I saw Psycho, first time I saw Saving Private Ryan. I think we, we sort of did, uh, the teacher who ran it, um, sort of did very loosely did a sort of history of Hollywood from um, uh, from Hitchcock to Spielberg and we sort of went through the 40s 50s 60s you know all the way through to the 90s basically sort of discovering like iconic films and and that really that really sort of rooted deep with me um, and then when I was at, at university uh, I sort of began specializing in film and I realized that's what I wanted to do I, I you know I wrote and I directed plays and I just, I don't know, there's, there, there is, there was something that just captured me about film. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to like that smell of the cinema and that feeling of popcorn and that sort of communal experience of watching a film together, you know, in a cinema. I, I, I know that always resonated with me. Um, and I, I sort of left university and realized I had no idea what, like how to do anything. <laughs> and um, I had done some, I did some work experience when I was at uni on, uh, Stardust, Matthew Vaughan's Stardust, um, and I sort of lucked my way into that. I, I, someone in his production office thought it was funny that his surname was my first name spelt the same, which is kind of incorrectly. <laughs> so the story goes, and I was like turning on air conditioning units at Pinewood Studios for a summer, just being like, "This is the most unbelievable. This is the most unbelievable thing I've, I've kind of ever experienced." Then you know, I fell in love with it, like the smell of the film set, that feeling of of being around, like that there's something so alluring and evocative about it and and that always stuck with me and um I sort of started I came out of uni and a friend I'd made on Stardust said you've got to come down like I'm working on something called Rory's First Kiss and I was like what the fuck is that that sounds like a like little screwball British romantic comedy and turned up and it was um the working title for The Dark Knight Chris Nolan's Dark Knight and I say like literally the the first or second day after um, uh, the first or second day after um, I came back from uni, we were doing the um, all of Gotham City Police Station took place in a building called Farmelows in London, which has now been ripped down. And um, yeah, we were doing the scene where Batman meets the Joker, like for the first time in that interrogation room. And on the second day, we did the clap. You know, the Commissioner Gordon, congratulations, Commissioner Gordon, and uh, <laughs> he started clapping. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I was like two miles away stopping traffic, but it was magic, you know? And, and I think once, once that was in my blood, that was it. And sort of worked my way up the, um, worked my way up the assistant director ladder, you know, absolutely loved being an AD and 
was very blessed to work with some amazing, amazing directors and people and kind of do everything from kind of micro budget and small TV series to, you know, tentpole kind of Hollywood blockbusters. And, but I always knew I wanted to write and direct. And um, I wrote a short film in 2014, 2013 into 2014, which we, which we shot, which was called Use of His Complicated, um, which did pretty well on the festival circuit. And um, it was just pure, pure chance, real serendipity. Um, two very close friends of mine, Tom Ackley and Margot, Ro- uh, Margot Ro- and Josie McNamara, who now produce with, with Margot Robbie and uh, under their Lucky Chat banner. Um, we were runners and assistants together. We, we came up together and I knew they wanted to produce and they knew I wanted to write and direct and we were always talking and um, they, they, I think they asked to read Terminal and loved it. Um, and it found its way on that at the time they were living in a flat share with Margs and she was over in the UK doing Tarzan. And she picked it up thinking CAA, her agency had sent it and read it and loved it. And we met and, you know, we, well, actually I knew her socially before that, but we sort of all hit it off. And, and a year later we, we made Terminal. And yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of where, that, that was sort of my, my backstory. That's kind of how I got to where I, I am now. Where you are in, now. Yeah. You say you, you got your start or you really liked theater. Do you remember like the first production you did? Was it starring or directing? Did you like the costumes you wore or whatever you did in theater? Because I, I love I love that because I started in theater too. So I was, I'm very curious on your story with theater. I, I, I vividly remember the first thing I did, the first school play I did apart from like nativity plays was a play called Dangerous Danny and I played Danny. I was always, I was always, in, I was always in front of, you know, on stage, not behind the camera then. But um, and I played Danny, and Danny got run over. It was like a morality story about looking before you cross the road. And um, I remember that. But the first real thing I did, I did a an Arthur Miller play called All My Sons. And there's a next door neighbour kid called Bert who sort of runs in and out. Um, and I did that. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I sort of, I, I'm so grateful to theatre because I. I love it. You know, it's sort of, you know, memories are made in childhood, right? And like, you know, the smell of grease paint and the feeling of hot lights on you, like there's nothing else like it. And there's, there's an immediacy to theatre, which is incomparable. And, you know, it taught me a lot about how, you know, just how important, you know, there's no money in theatre, right? Like everyone's on the same team. Everyone's like, you know, stretching out whatever they can. It's a true labour of love. And, you know, I, I sort of really, I feel like I try and bring that energy into the way I make films and, I love rehearsal. I love, the, I love collaborative effort because theatre is built on collaboration and you know working within. You know, there's a, there's a huge amount of similarities and a lot of stuff dovetails between theatre and film. But I guess where they differ is the size of that rehearsal process and and building up to that event. You know, that that opening night, that run in that run in the theatre. And I do try and take some of that energy into set and the way I think about the way I approach, you know, takes, for example, like I don't, I, I hate just rolling the camera. Like I always remember that as an AD thinking, well, you know, when, when directors would just turn over, that used to drive me nuts. It should be a set piece. It should be an event, you know, all of these departments who get these actors ready and, you know, you know, all those little things, the makeup, the costume, the, um, the art direction, all those nuances that go together to make that perfect frame. You've got to think about that stuff. And theater really taught me that. Very, very cool. Uh, I, I like that your use of theater and you went from theater and then you started doing the short films, production assistant, first assistant director and all that for these big movies. Uh, and then did you take any of your experiences from the theater growing up and 
put them to film? And uh, if they differed any, how did they? Uh, in terms of sort of my writing and directing? Right. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, I, think, I think confidence with actors, I think having acted and knowing you know, I acted a lot as a kid and also working very, you know, cheek by jowl with actors as a theatre director, you know, like blocking is so important in theatre. You know, it's all to do with lighting. It's to do with, you know, making sure you're in the right place on the stage. And that's actually super important on a film set and often forgotten. And yeah, like lessons, lessons like that, like understanding the mechanics of theatre really helped me understand the mechanics of film. Um, I think also, you know, just, just, like I was saying before, that innate ability to collaborate and understand that your HODs and department heads and cinematographers and designers and editors and costume designers, they're all like way better at their job than you are as the director. Like you're the, I think it's kind of building a collage being a director. Like my wife worked with Stephen Daudry, who's an incredible theater and, and TV and film director, obviously. And he said to her, you've got to always listen because um, everyone has, everyone has five good ideas. And it's your job as the director, you know, no matter how big or how small they are. And if you cherry pick those ideas and put them together and you make that collage, that's, that's what's going to make the best film. And I think that's, that's a very theatrical thing. That, 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 you know, that's, that, that is very true of theatre as well. Well, when, when you talk about trying to put something on screen that's like a little set piece, you know, I, uh, off the bat, Wes Anderson, that kind of comes into frame, um, even, you know, down to his pans and things like that. But then you think of somebody like Christopher Nolan, I mean, talk about an unlimited canvas. I mean, you're, you're, you're draping city scene, you know, streets and changing names and creating um, production for, for cop cars. Does it ever get overwhelming on, you know, I, I would imagine it does get overwhelming in, in the film because you kind of, you always have to think of how deep the lens goes and what you can see. And that's gotta be vastly different from the, the stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, I guess, I guess that is, that, that's, <laughs> that, that's where the, the big divide happens, right? Exactly. As you say, like the, uh, the, the, uh, the size and scope and scale and the ability to redo things. I think that's another reason I fell in love with film. The idea that you could always fight for perfection because you could always do it again until it was right. Um, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, like the, having worked on those huge, huge sets and, and you know, I, I aspire to make studio films in the future. I'd love to make massive films. I'd love to do all sorts of different types of films. Um, you know, so there's an amazing sort of energy on those sets. There's, a, there's an intensity and this, this amazing sort of team spirit. Like, you know, I, I don't know, I've done some, some huge, huge set pieces, some huge, you know, musical numbers and huge fight numbers. and it's amazing the choreography and the the amount of attention to detail that goes in that you know and it, and it it is it becomes this amazing event you know when all of these departments come together to do this chase scene or do this explosion or or do whatever it is it's 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 amazing and yes like the depth and scale and scope of it is is astronomical and you know there's not 30 people climbing you know on a stage there's 3000 you know not that many but you know a thousand people including extras doing these huge uh, crowd days that I've been a part of but it's all about that attention to detail it's all about precision and knowing where the camera's looking and dressing to frame and making sure everything's going at the right time and I the best directors I've had the pleasure of, of and privilege of working for they they knew that and they understood that well you mentioned gladiator is a huge influence on you and what you're talking about what you're trying to hide from the audience there's a 
a classic frame in Gladiator where when the chariot tips over and you can see the CO2 canister. So it's just things yeah. you have to think about to you know, keep yeah. the audience uh, behind that uh, mask of a narrative fantasy. Um, again, working on a Matthew Vaughn movie has got to be intimidating. Same thing with Christopher Nolan and these other people you've, uh, I, I assume Jerry Bruckheimer with um, the Pirates of the Caribbean oh, movie. Caribbean, yeah. yeah. Um, it, how much, so good, by the way. Very, very lovely man. He <laughs> was, was very, very polite. I have and, a, and does he have the high energy that he projects in making ofs and things like that? Uh, yeah, he was busy. Like he's, yeah, <laughs> he, yeah, he was, yeah, like he was, he has, he's, he's, he was, he, I remember him being quite quiet. Like I actually, I was, I was more to do, working with second unit and stunts on that, but he, I, I remember him, you know, always having his finger on the pulse. And, and I think all of those filmmakers that, that, that we just discussed, those incredible filmmakers that I've had the, the pleasure of working with, even in some cases very briefly, like, you know, it, it is all, they know they are part of a huge machine, but they know, you know, they, they sit at the center of it. And, you know, they, uh, Bill Condon, who I've worked with a couple of times, who's did Beauty and the Beast and astonishing, astonishing director and, and such a lovely guy. Um, and he's, he's a very, very, he's a real gentleman. Like he's, he's not an imposing figure and he's, he's not loud and big and, 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 and sort of uh, overbearing as a presence, but he sort of carries the film in like the palm of his hand. He's just, he's so well prepared and he communicates so well. And I think for me, like, that's essential as a, as a, as a filmmaker, as a director, as, as to be able to communicate your ideas clearly and, and to be able to convey what it is you mean quickly under pressure on a film set, you know, under the lights when time is inordinately expensive, you know, that's, that's so important. And the best directors and the ones I, I try and emulate are the ones that were, had great communication and were confident in their ideas. Well, did you, how much of a learning curve or how much of a shock was it going from university studying film to, did they prepare you for what you would encounter? Because I remember, um, no. I, <laughs> and that's what I was at, yeah. A deep end. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, not at all. And, okay. but it's, um, it's, it's, it's grunt work when you start, isn't it? And it's like, you either fall in love with it and you take it and you, you bear the incredibly long hours and the terrible pay and the, the drudgeries of, you know, locking off, you know, that, that, the thing that all peer production assistants hate, you know, stopping people walking onto set, stopping traffic, being miles away from the action. But, you know, like just living for that moment where you get to, you know, go onto set and help with the crowd or, you know, bring cars to and from. And, you know, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard work and it's a very, it's a steep slope to climb, but film is a genuine meritocracy. And if you're good at your job and you, you're a, you know, you're a good person and people like being around you, 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 you know, kind of regardless of background and status and color and creed or whatever, like you, you move up. Like it's a, it's a real meritocracy like that. And I, I kind of really fell in love with that. And I, and I do think it's, you know, like it becomes a bit of a badge of honor. I think when you, when you start as a runner or a PA or an assistant or whatever, like, you know, you, you, you earn your stripes, you get forged in that fire, right? Like it's, that's how you learn to get up at four o'clock in the morning. That's how you learn to communicate to 300 extras who are all hungry and cold. That's how you learn to like, you know, cue cars, you know, that are driving into each other in a stunt sequence. You, 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 you kind of earn the right, you know, to, you earn the right to play. And, and that for me was really important. And it taught me to, you know, actually get out of bed, which was quite important after three years at university. 
Yeah, I remember watching the, uh, there was a special feature on Saving Private Ryan where Matt Damon thought he was going to shadow Steven Spielberg for a day. He thought, yeah, I'm going to direct one day. So how does Steven do it? He followed him in a golf cart to every set and every unit. And he was, after about four hours, like, I can't do it. I'm done. I'm never going to direct <laughs> anything. So it takes a real temperance and, you know, like uh, a lot of energy and enthusiasm to make the, you know, like I said, climb the ladder and do what needs to be done. It's a, That's amazing. Oh, no, thank you, Matt. But, but it's like, but it's a, I don't know, it's like a, every day is Christmas day. Like, I, you know, professionally and I, I'm never happier than I am on a film set. I, I love the feeling of it. I love the energy of, of, of being there, of being part of this. Making a film is like the best team sport you'll ever play. You know, like, and there's all, everyone's there. Everyone's fighting for those inches to make the best thing they possibly can. Like, you know, from at every level from directors and producers down to you know like the you know additional costume and makeup that are coming in to do crowd or whatever like everyone's there like giving their all to to make art not to sound too ridiculously pretentious but that's amazing you know that's like every everyone is there for that common goal and to get paid which you know is nice but yeah i i find that i find that an amazing thing to be a part of very cool uh, before we jump into inheritance, I've got to ask, uh, Simon Pegg, uh, both Mark and I have talked with him before, uh, we love the guy, but it seems like you have a relationship with him because he's been in two, your two films. Uh, I have one... compromising, compromising evidence against him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> how how did you two meet? Uh, no, I mean he. Then you it must like. I mean, I like Terminal and I liked Inheritance and seeing uh, Simon in both films. In addition to Inheritance, where he's like not his usual character, which is fantastic. We'll get into that. But how did you two meet? And what did y'all bond over? And what pints did y'all drink? We, well, no, it was over, it was over sparkling water at, where was it? A nice restaurant in town, I can't remember where. And I'd, I mean, I, I have like, I actually went to the same university as Simon. He was there sort of 13, 14 years before I was. Um, and they've renamed a theatre there after him, which <laughs> I'm going to, they're going to be renaming that, that the Peg Theatre is going to be the Stein Theatre. I tell you that now, guys. <laughs> um, but um, we, I, you know, I, was obsessed with Shaun of the Dead, obsessed with it. I had wore out the DVD in my first year at uni. I had the poster on my wall. I think what what those guys did, what Simon and Edgar and Nick and, and Naira and everyone did with the Cornetto trilogy and everything they've done, I mean, it, it like re-galvanized, you know, like part of like the British film industry. It is, it's astonishing. I mean, it's, it, I, but I, I remember vividly, like Shaun of the Dead made me cry. Like, when he says goodbye to his mom, when, when Simon says goodbye to his mom, Sean says goodbye to his mom, that broke my heart. Like, oh, that's a sad Simon, thing. Yeah, but, but, that, and, but like, you know, the, the, the line between horror and comedy and horror and tragedy is, is very, very fine. It's about empathy, right? It's about, and to be able to switch gears like that is just world-class. Simon has that innate ability. Um, he's just, you know, he's a world-class comic actor he's renowned across the world for what he's able to do uh with comedy but he is an unbelievably talented actor um and we you know we met and we we kind of geeked out we like you know he's a like 
the lord of all of us you know like when it comes to geeking out and like i'm a massive star wars fan as well as he is and we sort of you know we just we bonded over film and we got on so well and yeah we're just we're really good buds and um you know i what he did on terminal like the way he embraced the sort of the undercurrent of darkness that permeated his character and really went with it and rode it i just thought was astonishing and i'd never seen him do that and when i first read inheritance like i remember thinking like he could smash this like i'd love for him to read it and i shared it with him and he responded and you know what what he did for that role the physical transformation he went under like it was astonishing and and but what he also bought as a as a dramatic actor the 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 sort of variations and the emotional complexity he was able to portray i was like i mean it was it's astonishing he's he's incredible in this I, I agree. Well, we, we, we love him too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's all right. He's all right. <laughs> so with Inheritance, um, where did you first uh, learn about the screenplay? Did you help develop it? Did you come aboard and just like read the screenplay and you're like, I need to be part of this? And what was, how did you come aboard? It was, uh, it was sent to me, um, it was kind of mid 2018 that I got it. Um, and I had, <laughs> I'd read some like really bad scripts that morning. I was like really behind. I, re I remember like vividly, like um, having read a few things, being like, oh, I'm not being in a great mood. And it had come through from Jordan Lono, my, my agent and a very good friend. And he was like, you need to read this. And Jordan's like miserable and nothing impresses him. So I was like, oh, okay, I should really read this one. And it just blew me away. Like I, I had that experience, you know, that very rare experience of like just, losing track of time where you're so immersed in the script and there was something about it that the way it sort of balanced this very sort of classically complex labyrinthine dark thriller with this this really this almost like this kind of folkloric like almost like a dark fable you know this skeleton in the closet this monster in the basement that sort of haunted this this dynastical new york family i just found the the combination of those two things like irresistible and um i spoke to uh, richard lewis the producer very quickly after that and you know we I, we i found he he was had very very similar passions for it and um simon uh, read early on and, and loved it and we started sort of building the character of morgan the sort of are we we in spoiler territory here are we okay to talk about this stuff yeah sure no we, we've both seen it for sure so oh yeah great uh, yeah um you know that this sort of the gaunt emaciated skeleton in the bunker buried, you know in the buried in the back garden of this family house and yeah i i just there was something about it there was something about the sort of haunting simplicity of the central narrative that's tied up in this quite complex and sort of quite fast-paced psychological thriller that i i just thought was unique and it you know i i i, I kind of knew I, I i i hate that expression i knew i had to do it but i was like you know i really want to make this movie and yeah, it sort of it grew from there. And, and, I and I love that you have procured uh, actors and talent and put them out of their norm, like Patrick Warburton. You know, I've never really seen him like that before, which was great. Or Margot Robbie in Terminal and Simon Pegg, you know, in these roles. And I just think that as a director, I'm glad you can find uh, roles for these people that maybe put them out of their comfort zone or just maybe explore what they're really excellent at. And I'm curious on like, how you get, how do you get them there? And I guess that's part, it goes both ways, I guess. Mm. No, it's, 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 I love it. Like I, I love, 
I love seeing a film like as a viewer and like having my expectations entirely subverted by an actor or like a twist or you know like that that feeling of the rug pull is something that I I really respond to as a viewer and a, and a filmmaker and I do, I, do you know I, I remember vividly watching Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind for the first time and just being like this is how is Jim Carrey not doing this more this is unreal like that is like a one of the most perfect performances I think I've ever seen and I that I, I love watching that and I don't know I, I for me like subverting expectations in films is something that I really love and I love doing that with casting and Patrick specifically in, in, in Inheritance who plays the sort of captain of industry Archer Monroe this sort of big this huge presence you know that, that sort of haunts the movie because you know he, he dies suddenly and violently at the beginning of the film and the you know the idea of um of sort of using that gravitas and physicality and that amazing voice and and sort of what well, presence that he has and, and utilizing that for in a straight role rather than as the sort of the, the the comedy big guy you know like which he does beautifully and it's and it's incredibly hard to do like you know him and John Lithgow there's not many that kind of do it as brilliantly as they do it's world class and you know to 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 see him you know, in these power suits and, and sort of, you know, becoming this like looming presence that haunts the film was, was amazing. Um, yeah, I guess that's where it comes from more than anything. I, I really enjoy that subversion. I enjoy playing an audience's perspective, uh, perceptions of what's about to happen against them, you know? I did enjoy that. I, and I, I, like, I love the attention to detail throughout the characters and their motives for doing things that you put in there, um, such as having the underground bunker by the, her, her fort as a kid. And I was like, wow. I mean, knowing what, what, you know, what happens at the end, I was like, wow, you know, Patrick Warburton's character really was, you know, in some part sadistic. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. way I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, make you think. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think one of the things that Matt Kennedy, the writer, captured so beautifully in the script is this idea of these like, it's like infinite shades of, of gray, you know, like there's no, there's no heroes in this movie, like, and without going into too much details, like, to, you know, like there is a, you know, Lauren, Lily's character, Lauren, you know, who, who is the, the, the protagonist, you know, the, the protagonist, the, the central figure in the movie, like she makes dubious choices that, you know that that sense of skewed morality sort of infects everyone in the film and like you say with archer like what what he does is is reprehensible this incredibly fire and brimstone you know vindictive punishment of morgan what he does to him which is itself inspired by something terrible that morgan did and you know i i think i think that really attracted to me the depth of narrative and sort of character of, of sort of you know like peeling off the veils of this family to sort of expose this kind of malignant underbelly. I, I found that really exciting to play with. Yeah, I, I, it, it is. And I'm, I'm curious if like at any of the rehearsals or like auditions, you know, being a movie that is about, uh, you know, physical and the emotional skeletons in a closet, did anybody reveal any skeletons in their closet or did that come up in family conversation with anybody with skeletons in the closet? Like, we're making a movie about this. Okay, <laughs> you're going to find this out. <laughs> I mean, that's what I've got over Simon. That's why he's featuring in every film now. Um, no, it's a, uh, we talk, you know, it, I think the thing, what is so good about the script and even though it is, you know, it's about, 
it's about a world that we you know that we 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 sort of only see on TV. It's, you know, it's uh, about a dynastical New York family, like an old money, you know, like you know, sort of landed gentry family of the East Coast. I mean, but it is the script resonates with everyone that reads it because it is about it's about family. It's about what we would do to preserve our own. What 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 awful moral choices would we make if we were put in those positions to to do the right thing or do the thing that is self-preservatory that protects our family and our own. And, you know, I think that I know that really resonated with, with myself and with Simon and Lils and like the way that we sort of wanted to, what, what I think attracted all of us to it. Um, and also something we wanted to really bring to the forefront. And what, one of the things um, that Lily and I discussed a lot was, you know, there's a, there's a real sense of private and public to her character, you know, in public, she's, you know, a DA for Manhattan, you know, this fiercely independent woman who's sort of carved carved her own, forged her own path and sort of eschewed the family money, moved away from her family name and is doing it on her own. But at the same time, like she's, you know, her personal life is destroyed by the, you know, through the death of her father. And she's pulled back into this awful kind of web of conspiracy and lies that sort of haunts the Monroe family. And on an emotional level and what she did so incredibly, I, I feel, and, and she's just such an amazing actor, was that she was able to sort of move seamlessly, like through the, the sort of public imagery, the public image of Lauren that she needed to present, you know, the, the tough, strong, professional woman. But then away from that, you know, in her personal life, like, you know, these deep-seated anxieties and this incredible vulnerability that she committed to so amazingly like to you know to to create this character it was amazing well when you have a character like um a character actor like patrick warburton playing the father um it correct me if i'm wrong an assembly cut of a film is basically all the raw footage before you start dialing it down correct yeah that's right did you did you have more of patrick in the movie because it felt like one of the reasons he was so restrained or pulled back from it it was kind of rivaling the fact that uh, lauren didn't really know her father Am I making that parallel up or is that, was that maybe the intention? So, no, you're absolutely right. I was actually just thinking through. So um, what we wanted, what we wanted to do, we, we sort of, the, the, the film happens very much either from Lauren's perspective or Morgan's perspective. So we shot these very intense scenes between father and daughter and, and, uh, and uh, uh, Catherine Archer and Lauren as well. And then when we got it, you know, when we got it into the edit, we, we found that what was really impactful was seeing these sort of snippets, these these flashes of memory and how they sort of bubbled up in her at times of, um, uh, you know, at times of anxiety or sort of vulnerability. And um, one of the things, I mean, Patrick just did the most amazing job, as did Connie Nielsen, who plays Catherine, of, you know, these scenes, you know, that they were, the the, the scenes take place where you watch the sort of, that you watch the relationship between father and daughter sort of fall apart through the choices that Lauren makes in, in her relationships, in her professional career. And you watch this wedge being driven between father and daughter, but we wanted to approach that opaquely. Like it, it needed to be from Lauren's perspective. So kind of in answer to your question, yes, there was more in the assembly, but the, the sort of the, the, the root of uh, the, that the sort of condensed, most impactful versions of those scenes take place in Lauren's memories. And that also allowed Archer to haunt the movie, you know, to be a sort of scepter that hangs over it. Gotcha. But, 
one of those two. <laughs> Spectre. Thanks. Well, do you think if, if you were in, in a situation like Lauren, uh, do you, how do you think you would have handled a cryptic memo and then having to deal with somebody that your father has kept underground for 30 years? Badly? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. That's a good. That's a good question. Um, I mean, just because, like, I, I was wondering, you know, I was wondering what would I would do with that information, even though it's, you know, falsified and not entirely truthful. It's like, I mean, why he even gave her that responsibility? It just it brings up all these questions that keeps your mind going as the layers of, you know, intrigue no, are added to the film. Yeah, I completely agree, and I, I think, you know, it is really interesting you ask that because I think. One of the, I know that what resonated me in the script was the idea that she tries to do the right thing. She, she has every intention of doing it, but like life, like, you know, life is not black and white. You know, it's, it's, it's the infinite shades between and it's, you know, the, those, it's the moral choices that we make in impossible situations, in desperate situations, in anger, in rage that define our lives. And I think that was one of the things that the script captured so evocatively, like, you know, cause and effect, like the ramifications of actions taken and these awful, these awful, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the things that echo, you know, in, into the future because of impulsive and enraged and terrified decisions that people take. Um, yeah, I don't know. For me personally, like I would, yeah, I would like to think I would make the, the morally right choice to do what is, you know, what is right in inverted commas, which is always good in the podcast. But I, I do think that's what was so subtle and elegant about that script. It takes a really good and virtuous and um, uh, legally minded character, someone who believes in truth and justice as a DA and puts her in a position that she, she has to choose between what's right and her family. And the spoiler alert, she chooses her family, which I, I think 99% of us would do. Well, it's also very interesting too, because Morgan uses a line towards the end. He says, I saw that look in your eyes and I knew that she takes in stray dogs. And so he was playing on that, that sympathy. But also if you remember, uh, maybe you've seen it, maybe not. There's one episode of Breaking Bad where Walter White has, uh, the facts are kind of escaping me, but he he has a drug dealer tied up in his basement, chained up in his basement. Yeah. And he thinks that he's reasoning with him and he's going to let him go and things are going to go okay. And Walter counts the pieces of the broken plate. Yeah. And it's that, you know, you do whatever it takes to survive. It's just, I mean. That's a great, a great, I can't tell you, like, that is one of the best episodes and one of the best TV seasons ever made. And it is like, you talk about like, bottle, what are they, they called? Bottle, do you guys call them bottle episodes or bottleneck episodes? You know, when it's one, that kind of one location, like two right, actors okay. room, like, and I just, I, rem- I remember that episode vividly because he was incredibly vulnerable and charismatic, the dealer he had hostage. And he was utilizing all of the whims and wiles that he could, you know, trying to manipulate water. Um, and it's so interesting you say that because a big influence on, on Simon and I, and something we discussed very early on, was um, the idea of Tom Ripley and that sort of the ability to assume another identity to further your own sort of sociopathic aims, the ability to blend in in a crowd, the ability to, you know, we talked, we created this sort of backstory for Morgan that, you know, he was this hustler, this kind of gutter rat who created this poker game that, that plays in the movie. Um, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a way of sort of meeting the well-to-do kind of high society, you know, you know, young kind of 
young millionaires with money to burn and like someone who coveted that world of excess and and glamour and and, and all of those trappings and um who was able to sort of reinvent himself to move seamlessly through it until he did this awful thing that you know that archer punished him for um but I, it was that sort of sociopathic idea that simon and i talked about a lot like chess is a big motif in the movie and morgan plays lauren like a chess game and she's also a great chess player which adds this sort of weight of intelligence to their conversations but he's able to assume these sort of different emotional states and one minute he'll be vulnerable or another minute he'll be you know penetrating her like you know like kind of you know sort of pulling at the strings of her reason but with with these kind of really incisive and penetrating lines so another moment he's he's begging another he's he's kind of vicious and he the way that what we wanted was him to be able to sort of manipulate Lauren using all of these wiles like that great Breaking Bad episode and you know what what Simon's what Simon gave and what was so incredible is I, I truly feel, I remember watching the rushes in the edit, like I feel sorry for this guy. Like, like he was really able to set up that rug pull, spoiler alert, you know, for the end that, you know, when we, when, which leads us into the crescendo because he was so, you know, amiable and vulnerable and, and, and desperate at various points. No, I agree completely. I do too. And I loved, you know, his, his turn, you know, like you said, he, he's a vulnerable, you actually care for the guy. And then all of a sudden you see like this Charles Lee Ray, Chucky slash Joker side of him, even in like the suit and the hair, it's like very reminiscent of something almost comic book style. And you're, you're like thrown into the deep end immediately with that. And it's, everything's like whoosh. <laughs> uh, like how you achieved that I guess is what I'm saying and I guess how did you get Simon and I guess you know when you talked about his character wh where did he draw his influences from for that we do you know we uh, we talked we talked about Tom Ripley we talked about Hannibal Lecter um <laughs> that was it that was you know, I mean, it was a, it was a, it's one of my favorite movies and it was a big touch point for, you know, for obvious reasons. I think there was a lot of Silence of the Lambs in your film, uh, Inheritance, as kind of maybe Lily Collins playing the Clarice Starling type of thing, trying to figure out all the information, which I thought is awesome. Uh, it, it, absolutely. And, and I, it, it's, to me, that's like a great example of a perfect movie. Like, no one will do a movie like that better than Demi did Silence of the Lambs. And those scenes that stuck in my mind and I will never forget are the, Clarice's interrogation of Hannibal Lecter, whereas it's of course it's the other way around, quid, quid pro quo, and that was a massive influence on on uh, as a sort of jumping off point for how I wanted Simon to sort of be able to engage uh, with Lily and, and vice versa for Lily to engage with Simon. And you know, one of um, one of the things for me um, about that rug pull that we do in Inheritance um, that I was sort of so proud of is is the way that we 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 built like we were saying before we sort of built up our our empathy as an audience with morgan and we really feel for this awful situation that he's been in and that you know this this unbearable impossible awful thing that's happened to him this 30 years of incarceration and you know and ever you know he as as we see all of these clues all of the evidence he gives her throughout the movie it pays off like things he tells her are proved true in the real world um i've totally got away from the question sorry we were talking about um that those influences for that yeah. for that last 
that last moment. Uh, but it was it was the it was the ability to to sort of explode his character in the crescendo to sort of see the volatility to see the the true the true evil the the malignancy that that sort of lurked beneath the surface that we sort of tried i tried as a filmmaker to sort of give the audience some breadcrumbs for but then to really pay it off in spades with that incredible performance of simon at the end no for sure like i mean how do we get simon on the show right now let's get get him on and have him yell at us (laughs) (laughs) that would be great (laughs) um but I, i think the thing was i mean and this is testament to the actors though like the the intensity and the the fury of that scene and also just the the beauty of the way that those bunker scenes were performed were Joe, you know, due to the incredible discipline of the actors, like they were word perfect every day. We were, we were doing six or seven pages a day in the bunker, you know, because, and we could do, we could expect, because they were so well drilled and we'd rehearsed so much and it leaves room for inspiration. When you come to set prepared and you know your lines and you know your, you know your blocking, those bubbles of inspiration can come to the surface. And some of the the best moments in the films were improvised by, by Lily and by Simon, and none more so than in that crescendo. But I mean, we were doing, you know, eight minute takes of that sequence with, so they were word perfect. They were blocking perfect. They could do it all. It was amazing. That's great. That's really cool. Um, I, I want, can you talk a little bit about the score and the music of the film? Because I really found it quite thrilling, uh, the music. And even in one particular scene that stuck out to me, for some reason, uh, it's the scene where the car's driving, she's driving, um, Simon to go see the body and there's like a a hint of the shining in there even with the camera shots going around and stuff like that I was like wait what did I just see (laughs) so can you talk a little bit about the score uh yeah of course good good spot I like that (laughs) good easter egg you know I'm impressed yeah we thought we buried that one quite deep yeah it had a had a shining synth going on in it right um Marlon Espino who uh is who composed it who is just astonishingly talented. Um, we, we started talking early on, there, there were these two disparate ideas that I really wanted to try and capture, which he did so beautifully. Um, the first was the idea that the music could be a genuinely emotive and emotional map for Lauren. Like, I loved the idea because the film takes place so much from her perspective that we could be connected to the tragedy and the anxiety and the upset and the tension and, and what she's going through. Um, and we sort of did that with a with a combination of kind of modern piano and strings, um, which I just thought, and, and a bit of a, actually a little bit of electric guitar that that Marlon just composed and played so so beautifully and so subtly, kind of really interweaving it into the movie. And um, I remember a, a big reference, a bit a sort of jumping off point for us was a Quiet Place, the the Marco Bedrani score, which I just think is, I mean, just blows my mind. And and I loved you know, the way that that score moves from these incredibly tender and loving scenes at a dining table to blind aliens haunting people around a hat. You know, it's it's incredible, like, to move between romanticism and horror like that. And Marlon, I think, achieved something similar, like like the way that, you know, so we had this front end that there were these very classic instruments, and then we used these very tense, very anxious sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of uh, synths and, and sustains behind that, that, sort of carried this sense of like dread this creeping dread this sort of tonal anxiety and I think we sort of looked we really there were bits we wanted to play for horror and bits we wanted to play for genuine bereavement and a lot of it 
to just manifest itself in the psychology of Lauren to, to sort of the music is very reflective of her emotional state at that time, as well as having that undertone of dread. And I think combining those two kind of contradictory ideas, the sort of, you know, creeping dread and tonal anxiety and, and, you know, sort of emotional delicacy. I just think he handled it beautifully. He, he really, he really did. I, I enjoyed the score. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell him he'll love that. He'll love it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's he's he's amazing, and and it was a real you know it was a real pleasure to build it with him, and and the the sort of delicacy he handled it with was 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 superb. Now, one of the interesting things, the the constants in the film is uh, Simon Pegg and his love for uh, key lime pie. Uh, I know, talking to Simon, he doesn't drink anymore, but he was in uh, the World's End where they consumed sixty pints. Um, What's his take on Key Lime Pie? Was that in the script? And then a little follow-up to that, it's an interesting production design, that little recipe that he recited to himself. Um, the bunker that he was in looked like it had these little alcoves or more of a catacomb. You have production design experience. How much fun or what kind of things did you get to do with the set and those little rooms that we never really saw in the bunker? Um, Diane Millett, the production designer, did, who did an astonishing job with that, with that, that set. That was kind of our primary build. Um, we spoke uh, right at the beginning. I, I'd kind of always had this idea um, for the bunker to feel like a sort of Cold War nuclear fallout shelter. And there was a there was a conversation between the writer and I about whether we would incorporate that into the script. And we sort of decided not to because we kind of liked the idea that it just kind of just arrived fully formed. But that sort of influenced the way that we, that we she designed it based, I mean, almost literally on a blueprint of like a, of a, of a sort of, 1960s fallout shelter that you know millionaires around the states built at the height of the cold war you know 62 63 the cuban missile crisis it was a it was a possibility people would genuinely be building you know bomb shelters yeah um and what we wanted to do uh, you know again we took inspiration from sort of silence the lambs and that that terrifying basement chain guns basement and those sort of labyrinth that warren of rooms you know i that fucking terrified me you know like really i remember how much that got under my skin and the idea you know that of course that that helps us play with horror tropes and it helps with the choreography of some of the stuff that we did but what we wanted to do was create this weird sort of disjointed amputated time warp down there so the set dressing uh, you know it came from some of it was like you know kids clothes from the 60s um, you know, uh, the bunk beds that were in there were from the 60s. The grow equipment was from sort of the 70s, 80s. This idea that there were sort of these weird, like, layers to the bunker, that some of it was almost like, uh, you know, Victorian brick. Some of it was poured concrete. Yeah, we, we sort of really wanted to play with all of those, you know, play, you know, play with those visual, uh, play with the visuals and see what we could do to create that sort of unnerving effect. Um, but, you know, Michael Merriman, the cinematographer who, who just, you know, was unreal. His talent is incredible. Like, you know, the way that he was able to keep that bunker, that room fresh and, you know, to utilize beautiful lighting, you know, you know, drawing on horror and noir and, you know, kind of creating mood and tension, you know, in, in relatively static frames, you know, uncomfortable static frames. We talked a lot about duality and Merriman and Diana and I about, you know, the, the sort of sense of contradiction between above and below and the bunker and the mansion and, you know, the canyons of Manhattan and the green forests of upstate New York and how we could sort of blend that together. And, you know, in terms of camera language, 
you know, downstairs was was oppressive and still and uncomfortable. And it was, you know, trying to create that sense of tension and that sense of, you know, sort of overbearing pressure on Lauren um, and using angles very originally and create, you know, you know, and, and lighting it beautifully. And then where, where a lot of the plot takes place above ground, you know, we were much more fluid and, and fast paced as the, as the, the editorial choices were as well, you know, because we wanted it to feel, uh, you know, static below ground and oppressive and claustrophobic. And then everything above ground is kind of a whirlwind as Lauren sort of experiences it in real time and has to sort of balance the two. So yeah, they were, they were sort of the big, the big uh, sort of cinematography and design influences on the bunker and how it, how it pertained to the rest of the world. Yeah. I, I actually never thought about that. Cause I, I know that ha- there were little rooms and things in the bunker they never got to see, but like what you described it, it's a way that the family, of wealth could not just survive a night they could thrive and a lot like morgan did be there for three decades gosh that's that's insane um it's that thing is that it, it's so you know it's so much fun the devil's in the detail right and i, I love yeah. world building anyway like I, I love doing that with terminal and, and on this one in a different way and you know you sort of it's amazing what you c- can convey you could convey in your choice of you know, costume and makeup and design and set dressing to an audience, what you can say without saying it. And what we were trying to do with the bunker was, was really lean into that and, you know, tell, tell an audience something about this space without ever telling them specifically what it was. Yeah. Amazing. That was- um, weird sidetrack here, but um, again, going back to Gladiator being a huge influence in you, how geeky did you get casting Connie Nielsen? Uh, like embarrassingly so. <laughs> embarrassingly so. I, mean, she I had a crush on her great. when I was in college. I was uh, years ago. Yeah, was like, wow. oh, and she is, she's just wonderful. And, you know, she, she sort of, you know, she came, she came to the role with this, this amazing idea of this sort of creating this strong matriarch. And what I loved about her idea as well was that you sort of, you get the idea that, you know, Archer's this captain of industry and the patriarch of this family and, you know, this sort of, you know, the, 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 the linchpin of the Munros. Whereas it's her, it's Catherine. She's the power behind her son, William Chase Crawford's character's political campaign. She's the one who sort of Lauren goes to, you know, kind of unsubtly for advice when things are going wrong. And, you know, Connie has the most amazing presence and, and you know, so, so sort of, you know, she's, she's such a, she was such a sort of beacon on set. It really allowed us to explore that. And I mean, yeah, I geeked out pretty hard. I've got to be honest on the, on the gladiator side of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I was like, look, it was, I've been so blessed. I've, I've had the privilege of working with these amazing ensemble casts on both movies and, you know, like to work with, with Lily and Simon and Connie and Chase Crawford, who, who played William, who, you know, we sort of talked about this slick, suave, debonair politician with this kind of real heart of darkness, you know, who was really his father's son and how he could sort of switch on a dime, you know, like, you know, that, 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 the, the Monroe family were, were so important, as, as Morgan says at one point, um, a lawyer, a banker and a politician, the unholy trinity, quite the family. And it's like, they needed to be real. They needed to be three-dimensional and, and, and plausible. And I think they just did the most amazing job. Uh, they did. They came together. Um, so 
what's next for you, Vaughn? What's, uh, what's in the pipeline? Is there something you're working on right now that we can see later this year or next year? Is there something that you've been wanting to do, uh, like a certain genre? What's next? I am re-watching Friends in my pants a lot, trying to use my wife's spin bike which I haven't done. No, um, I, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> what I mean, are you on? <laughs> oh man, this is like 57th time round. Like, honestly, it's my, it's my happy place. That's my go-to. Yeah. It's my friends is my weird go-to obsession. Um, anyway, um, I, so I'm in post-production at the moment on a psychological thriller, um, called every breath you take, uh, which is, uh, with Casey Affleck and Michelle Monaghan and Sam Claflin, um, Veronica Ferris, amazing ensemble cast as well, India Isley, Emily Lind, um, and it's sort of set in the Pacific Northwest and it's about a bereaved psychiatrist and his family who've suffered an awful tragedy um, and are struggling to to deal with one another. The family's kind of falling apart and then a stranger calls um, and, and everything begins to sort of unravel from there. And um, we shot that in Vancouver sort of over the new year and we had literally, we locked the director's cut the Friday before we went into lockdown on the Monday. So we've been, uh, I've been working with the producers and, and Laura Jennings, the editor, uh, remotely. Uh, we've been uh, using Zoom, even though production provided us with some really expensive stuff. None of us knew how to plug it in. So we're using screen share on Zoom. Thank God for Zoom. Um, so yeah, we're just finishing that at the moment. Uh, we're about to start mixing that. Um, and that should be around later this year. Um, and there's, yeah, I, I'm, there's some really, hopefully, please God, when the world writes on its axis a bit, there's a couple of amazing projects that I'm really excited about that um, I'm not going to tell you about because I can't. Well, well all right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm curious with Every Breath You Take, do you have a creepy version of the song Every Breath You Take to add in? We, well, we were, we, were, we were playing with that. Yeah, we're, we're, it's, it's as, with, as, with, as often is the case, like, the, you know, the, the title and stuff is, is kind of in flux, so... Uh, but we did. We were using, yeah, an amazing, terrifying cover of the song, actually, at one point. Um, yeah, that was, that's funny you say that. Yeah, it only came out, it only came out of the cut recently. How funny. Well, I just, I just, I know, I thought about, you know, Jordan Peele's Us with, uh, I got five on it and that, you know, the Tethered remix. I was like, oh, man. You are, honestly, I love you for that reference. I used that reference, like, a couple of weeks ago. Like, guys, listen to this. It's so freak. It's and then, oh, do you know, I'm now just to geek out on Jordan Peele because he's just unreal. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do Inheritance was because Get Out just blew my mind. And that combination of sort of horror movie and brilliant satire. I was like, if I can in some small way capture a little bit of what Peele did with Get Out, I'll be very happy. All right. Well, I like that. I know I like that. <laughs> uh, but you, look, that bit where, you know, when they say, call the police to Alexa. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the song comes on oh my days that's so fun but yes I, lo I love doing stuff like that I do love playing with music in my life. cool and I, I want to let, let's fucking geek out a little bit right here um, what are some certain scenes from movies certain scenes from movies that always stuck with you that like some of your favorite just favorite scenes moments from film and so like, like you know to give an example like some of mine would be like the job interview in train spotting where Spud just completely fucks it all up. It does spit like, up his face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great that's a great one. That's a great one. Um what that's a good oh do you know the the what it oh my god. 
that Kronos Quartet montage towards the end of Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yes. That, like, yeah, that's, I think that, that's haunted the me. The Clint Mansell song. Clint, just, that's, oh, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's haunted my dreams for a long time. Um, I do absolutely love Tim Roth learning to tell the, the dealer story in Reservoir Dogs. Like, I wish I could still repeat it almost word for word like I used to be able to at uni. Um, there, are spit, there are parts of uh, Finch's Fight Club that I think are timeless. I think are unbelievably... The, you know, the, the Tyler Durden speech when he's rallying Project Mayhem for the first time in the, you know, under Joe's, you know, and that, you know, that, you know, society, I can't remember it now, but you know, that, that society's got us busting tables. Like, you know, we're not, they, you know, we were supposed to be rock stars and film gods and we're very fucking pissed off about it. Yeah. And the fact it flashes on Jared Leto when they say uh, <laughs> rock stars, I thought it was great. Um, oh, that's a great question. Um, what was I watching recently? And I forgot was so unbelievable. You know, in Goodfellas, when, uh, Ray Liotta goes to get the gun, beats the shit out of the guy who's uh, by the red car. Yeah, her neighbor, take, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then in one take brings the gun back to, um, uh, to his girlfriend, whose name's completely escaped me. I remember watching that because years ago on um, World War Z, I had the pleasure of working with Larry Cronkey, who was the um, Steadicam operator. He did the, the, the shot. He did the oh. Goodfellow shot through the club. Um, and he, we talked about... <laughs> that scene like he rehearsed that for days to get that right like you know that you know I mean it's one of the best shots in cinema but he said that one was harder I think he said that one, the one following him like to, to and from the house was really tricky um but I yeah that that I remember watching that recently just thinking what an astonishing moment um oh it's such a good question there's so many no I know like, there, well, well, so many good ones yeah <laughs> I'm like any 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 uh comedic ones I mean one of my one of my favorite comedy ones I guess is in Spaceballs just because it's the asshole joke the old asshole joke and Mel Brooks nailed it we're surrounded by assholes but it's like a yeah. whole thing and I thought that was like a perfect scene I, oh, oh that's okay I, the Blazing Saddle speaking of Mel Brooks funniest when, movie ever made yes that between that and Spinal Tap there is no winner though I would say <laughs> I have never laughed as hard as I did at Borat Borat made me nearly puke in the cinema I've never laughed so but when the sheriffs come in in yes. Blazing Saddles, <laughs> it's like honestly, I was like, I I'd still cry with laughter even like just thinking about that makes me laugh. Um, <laughs> what was I do? There are parts of yeah, I I there are I, I my dad was a massive Laurel and Hardy fan, and there's there's bits of Bratz and Way Out West, like the physical comedy in that I can't, I can't I still can't get over. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's. I can't really think, yeah, I'd, I'd spine, Spinal Tap, Stonehenge and Spinal Tap, I think, is, is up there as well. But was I would it, say that some of the Cornetto trilogy... Oh, no, is, for sure. Are ...some of the best comedy moments I, I think ever done. So. I, I think, like, even in Shaun of the Dead, I think one of the big laughs I got, I mean, throughout the whole movie, but when Simon goes, you know nonchalantly walking through town to get his soda but then just the slip on the floor of yeah. the blood yeah it's like pitch perfect <laughs> but like they i mean I, i'm sure i read i've never asked him about this if it's true but that was the first take that was the first day that was the, that was Edgar, the, the first thing they did was some giant steady cam shot with you know <laughs> not enough money not enough extras through through north london and it is just it's it's peerless it's it's unbelievably good yeah that's a great one uh, or, or there's that part when um, 
when Simon goes in to check on uh, his mom and he comes out and Edgar Wright and he's slammed into a, a parking sign and like his body covers the accident. He's like, you were parked. And he goes, yeah, guess I have to take the jag. Doesn't it was pranked it. I mean, I love, I love Edgar's editorial style anyway. I just think it's, it's so, I mean, it's like, only he can get that right, that precision. I mean, it's just amazing. But you know, when they like when when Sean's telling the story about you know going to the Winchester, having a pint, waiting for it all to blow over, and the story gets progressively quicker because he starts cutting bits because he keeps getting it wrong. I remember, I, I remember watching that like probably a hundred times at uni, but being like, this is like, this is like genius. This is this is peerless filmmaking. Like I, that really stuck with me. Yeah. Well, his intro film. to uh, Hot Fuzz when he transitions from. Um, his police station to um, wherever the oh, little town was. Just like that whole series of like the train and the, the fern and then the cuts and then the night and the day and the rain. It's like, it tells a whole story just in these brilliant cuts. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's so like, you know, it's often emulated, never perfected, right? Like, you know, like, you know, far from the way that Edgar does it. But I always think like, people kind of forget like, like in, in Tarant Tarantino uses these amazing little shortcuts, you know, with his, the way he uses these really blunt inserts in his films. Like, you know, I, I, for the one that comes to mind immediately is, is um, when, uh, when, he's, <laughs> when he's making the frozen margarita, Michael Madsen's character, in the when out when um El Driver too, yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. he just and Tarantino does these amazing little quick quick fire montages of like a blender, zzz, zzz, and then he's drinking it, and you're like, oh, that's like that's glorious, you know, like and I, I do, I, I always look out for those in in Tarantino movies. I'm trying to think if he did one in Once Upon a Time when uh, when DiCaprio makes the um, uh, when he makes the whiskey sour, and I can't remember if he did or not. Oh, you know what? I actually think he did. <laughs> because I, I noticed that because I actually thought about that, that scene in Kill Bill Volume 2. <laughs> yes, and he's doing that. And I just remember in that scene, he brings it out to the cars, like, get this mechanical asshole out of here. <laughs> <laughs> God, I love that movie. Uh, but I tell you, that was, um, speaking of geeking out, it, like geeking out in the geek out section. So I went with my very good friend, Alex Marquez, who edited uh, Terminal. He took me to Frankie and Musso's uh, and we went, we sat at the bar and I ordered a sour and the bartender who made it made the sour on camera in the movie. And That's I was like, great. this is unreal. Like I was living in LA at the time and, you know, uh, and I was like, I can't believe this. I'm sitting in the heart of Hollywood drinking in the bar from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the bartender from, from the movie has just made me this drink. Was, that was a good moment. That was kind of uber geeking, I think. I lost control of it. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's, that's what I would do. It's like, oh, he's in the movie. We're you're sitting there. No, I've... I've the meta. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, I mean, barring the fact that you could get one in the Sky Mall catalog, but you were working on The Dark Knight, did you find a batarang just laying around that you snuck in your pocket and walked off or any cool... Any cool props from that movie or other movies you really enjoy? I feel, like, I feel like the party line is to say no, but I definitely have a Gotham City PD memo piece of paper. You know when uh, the cell phone's buried in um, buried in the in the guy's stomach and it goes off. 
so that we did that at Farmerlows, and they, they, I mean, this is like the attention to detail you're talking about in these films. I mean, it's next level, you know. So when that happens and the windows blow, and then the Joker's got the police guy hostage, and they're moving, you know, they're shooting at him, and all the squibs are going off in the office. Just that little moment, like that was like half a day of our shooting, and all that paperwork that was going in the air was, you know, Gotham City PD paperwork. And I was like, at the end of the day, we were all sort of wrapping out. I was like, I've got to get one. Got to get one. Um, well, I've got yeah, I've got um, I've got some stuff from Potter. I did uh, the, uh, the Deathly Hallows Part Two, which is one of the most amazing, amazing experiences. Like it was like a people often say a film set's like a family. Like my wife's an art director and she's on The Crown, uh, the Netflix show, and they have the same thing. They've been going so long; they're all like these amazing friends. And you know, on Harry Potter, like I, I sort of came in, I did a year out of eight, and I still like I have close friends still from that. And the cast were just amazing and every day you would just be doing some insanely incredible thing like you know like you know like the, the courtyard fight that we shot for a month and a half and yeah and you know all these amazing like the best actors to have you know to have ever worked in british film coming through every day and anyway i i definitely the i worked with stunts a lot on that and they had stunt wands and i think a stunt wand might have gone missing and might be in my box upstairs i'm not sure i couldn't swear to it but yeah, I got one. Yeah, I got uh, I got one of those. I've got a few little bits. I got some nice stuff. Yeah. Are, are you Excellent. a collector of uh, film memorabilia at all, or like, no. uh, or Blu-rays, or 4K, or movies, Criterion Collection, any of that? No, um, I'm no, I'm 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 not. But I <laughs> I was, and then I don't know why I did this to this day. I don't know what the fuck was wrong with me. I had the most amazing DVD. I mean, we've all got. I had one of our DVD collections, right? Like I had everything i'd been building it up for years and we were moving house i was sharing a house with my brother i mean it wasn't it wasn't crazy i think it was like six or seven hundred like they were all on the catalogued on the walls and we did a house clearance and i was like you know what i can't carry this with me anymore like i want it i'm going to get it all it's all going to be online soon it's all going to be streaming and i fucking didn't take it i don't know what was wrong with me i was like i'm moving into house with my my now wife i was like no i want to need a fresh start it's all going to be there it's all going to be online and I, to this day, it's like the worst collecting decision I've ever made. And it was a very respectable DVD collection. We had the Eisensteins. We, you know, we, we had the Bergmans. We had the Eggerites. Oh, fuck, I don't know. So I, honestly, I, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Do you ever think about getting back into it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this house is, this house is too small. But yeah, I'd love to. I do, um, yeah, I would, I, I would love to. Yeah, I'd love to build up my collection again. I... I you know, it's it's that thing, isn't it? It's like, um, and as a filmmaker, I like the, the the best pleasure I get. I'm not a, I'm not a collector of of things. I don't think I'm more a collector of things that I experience. Like that's what I love. But you know, when I look at, you know, I've got like the terminal and the inheritance and every breath clapperboard, and got the you know the a frame poster from the opening night of Terminal in the UK, and you know, like those are those are the things. You know, those we all you know we all spend all this time and all dedicate or blood, sweat, and tears to this little piece of plastic that goes on someone's shelf, right? And that's why we do it. Like, well, you know, there, there, there's like the artwork, there's the liner notes and all of it. I mean, there's, it's a whole thing. And now they become collectors with like steel books and, you know, part of like collector's editions of everything. So. Yeah. But I think that Criterion collection, I mean, what, I mean, obviously it's, it's unreal, but some of the stuff they've added, and I'm just like, the, the curator of that, whoever that is, they are a genius. 
like a some of the things they've added like i was arguing with somebody like armageddon's in the criterion collection i was like yes of course it fucking is it's one of the of its type it is without doubt one of the best movies ever made why would it not be in the criteria no yes, for it should sure. sit alongside fucking 2001 absolutely well there, there's two um two michael bays and zero spielbergs you tell me how that's possible <laughs> there's no jaws is not in the criterion collection no no, no I, I have no idea. Criterion yet. Yeah, my math goes back when I became kind of a criterion junkie about six, seven years ago. But as I've been looking and getting things, I, that just sticks with me. You got Paul Verhoeven with Robocop. That makes perfect yeah, sense. You, you got The Rock. You yeah. have um, Armageddon and Zero Spielberg. So I can't, I can't quantify that. I cannot. Like that's. <laughs> and I have no idea. I, I'm thinking the only is not in the Criterion Collection. No, it's, it is. Maybe what Universal is? has something. Maybe there's some like rights thing. Uh, okay. But that's the only thing I can think of. Like, it has to. Be, it has to be because a lot of his movies are culturally significant and important, which Criterion prides themselves on. Because I, you know, I think Criterion is almost like the Neiman Marcus of home video. I mean, they've got like the the video and the audio and all the crazy extras because the spinal tap is a criterion as well yeah yeah <laughs> and rightfully so but i mean i what movie of spielberg's would you release first on criterion because that, that's that's a like which one do you do do you do schindler's list do you do saving private ryan do you do jurassic park do jurassic park it's got, it's got to be jurassic park it's a paradigm shift that was the moment wasn't it that was the the brave new world, the beginning of the beginning of genuine VFX, genuine the the combination of anima, of animatronics and visual effects. I mean, it doesn't get so so not ET or nineteen forty one or oh, there's so many. It could be it could be ET. <laughs> oh, it could be ET. ET would have a would definitely have a shout. Uh, Jaws would. I mean, Jaws, and even as I say, I'm like, well, Jaws is like invented the summer blockbuster. Jaws is Jaws. There is right. there is so little that can be parallel that can be compared to the cultural effect of Jaws, like, oh man, that's tough. It's like Sophie's Choice. No, it is. <laughs> <laughs> At some point oh. it will happen. Well, uh, Vaughn, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell everybody where they can watch uh, Terminal and where they can watch uh, Inheritance? Yeah, sure. Uh, Inheritance uh, comes out on this Friday, the 22nd. Uh, I mean, to the state of the world, it won't be theatrical. We're, we're, it's going straight to streaming, so available all good and evil streaming sites um, and I think in her terminal is on um, iTunes and Amazon and the same sort of thing I think excellent excellent and uh, we would love to have you and whoever else you want to bring on when your uh, next film comes out or even sooner we love talking with you we could do this all day it's, Mate, been, always, yeah. it's been it's been brilliant it's been we, a pleasure Thank you. yeah we could we could do a friends podcast <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking. We have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank um, you so much. And uh, we, we will talk soon. Yeah, a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I would actually just like to add one thing because I yeah. forgot. I was watching Dogma the other day. And Great that, movie. What? The, in the airport, the opening in the airport. Matt, the, oh, my God. Like, just the, the walrus and the carpenter speech. I just was like, I just forgot. I forgot. I forgot. That film is unreal. What a film. What a movie. That, anyway. that is a great film. Dogma is wonderful. I, yeah. I've been wanting to watch that again. Revisit it. It stands up like you wouldn't believe. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, so you're saying that Bethany is part 
black? <laughs> you have smoked yourself retarded. <laughs> oh, man. What a movie. <laughs> so good. All right. Well, we'll, we'll be back next time. Thank you.